Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Big week, sports, opening of the NFL season, natural disasters, hearts go out to everybody in Irma and Harvey and everywhere else. I'm Nobody really cares, but I'm in the middle of a hurricane um, voluntary evacuation zone. We're all cleaning up here in South Florida, and I'm leaving soon. But there's no better way to get my mind off of the issues at hand than talk about the trillion-dollar business of sports with my good friend, guru, global digital editor, Reuters, Dan Calaruso. You okay? I'm okay, Rick. I'm, I was wondering if you were okay. I was. You were one of the people in my uh, thoughts and prayers. I have a lot of people in Florida. Um, so this was a, a wild and woolly weekend for you guys. Um, uh, so I'm glad to hear everything seems to be okay uh, on your end. Wild, woolly, and lucky. The storm threw everybody a curveball. The northeast quadrant was big. The storm surge was huge. The south part was not still un, 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 uh, unknown in the Keys. And uh, Florida basically will never be the same after this, set a whole bunch of records and global warming. But that's another story for another day. And by the way, a Boca Raton resident, pretty good segue, played golf with him a lot on a course that may be no more, Boca Grove. Name is Les Alexander. He tried to buy the NBA expansion franchise here in South Florida before there was one. He really wanted a team. He bought the Houston Rockets, by the way, for $85 million. He's just now selling them to the guy who offered $81 million 25 years ago. His name is, he's a Landry's owner, the restaurant chain. He's a billionaire, Tillman Fertitta. He wanted to spend anything. Guess what he spent? $2.2 billion. And if it goes through, and why wouldn't it? It's uh, $0.2 billion, $200 more than what Steve Ballmer paid for the Clippers two years ago. And Les Alexander sold this team to the same guy who he just beat out for 27 times the price he bought it for. How's that for a return on investment? That's astonishing. I imagine Les Alexander will have more time to play golf with you. Well, he may more. I want to. I want to see him board up the house on his own, man. I'm telling you, no, no more hiring people to do it down here. He can afford it. <laughs> uh, no, but I think. Look, it's a it's a new breed of right? We're really seeing the 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 generational turnover in NF, in NBA ownership, right? I mean, we we have uh, you know a new owner with Balmer. We have a lot of new money looking to get in on the sports franchise game because they do see it as a a multi-platform revenue generator. And whether it's a TV deal, whether it's a social media video deal, whether it's the arena, the enabled arena that we always talk about with technology, I mean, there's a lot of lot of ways for them to generate money out of these franchises these days. High risk reward, obviously, but if Fertitta's in the game for the long haul, $2.2 billion, right, that's the number, um, may seem like a bargain. 
Yeah, but now you're absolutely right because we're seeing the next step of the new breed of, own, of owner. You have some inside information, or or your friend is with the with the Milwaukee Bucks ownership group. Uh, we all understand that the new breed is willing to spend a lot, but wait out the next TV cycle. And when you pay two billion, it's going to take a while for you to get the return. Certainly, the Alexander twenty-seven times it. So Prokhorov in the Nets. Remember, he waited after this price. I don't know if he's going to wait that much longer. Little Caesars Arena finally opens up this next month in downtown Detroit, which means the Pistons now have a new home. I'm not sure that automatically means a sale, but the deal has been get the next TV deal, get the new arena, get your revenues and get out. And this may be the next layer. The poker off thing is really interesting because, you know, he was supposed to be part of the new breed, but the Nets hasn't quite the net situation hasn't quite worked out as he expected it to. Uh, you know, they mortgaged the franchise early with the big trade with the Celtics. They were scattered down to bones last year. They have a good franchise. They're rebuilding. Does Pokerov really have the staying power? Does he see his opportunity to get out before there's any political heat on Russia, you know, out of the Mueller investigation and Trump? Does that affect how he thinks? It's, Brooklyn's a really interesting variable because it's a huge market. Even though they have the Knicks here, it's still a huge market. It's a brand new arena, great arena. Um, so what's Pokerov's play? It's going to be fun to watch that in the course of the next six months to a year to see if anybody else steps up. You would imagine with the New York new media money sloshing around, there would be another p- raft of potential buyers from that community for the Brooklyn franchise. But, but let's remember also that uh... – uh, there are a lot of other people, and he, he did separate his real estate from the deal, and we'll see what happens with that. But the bottom line of all of this, too, is that there are a lot of other owners who are looking maybe to do the same kind of thing. You know, Ted Arison's son, Mickey, the basis for this franchise in South Florida is $32.5 million. They're valued now at $2 billion. So what are you going to do? Well, uh, same thing with Golden State. They're a defending champion. They're a dynasty. But now they've got to wait for their new arena to get done. And Joe Lacob's always wanted to stay in basketball. One of these days when the season opens up, let's go down ownership and see who's in it for the long term, in it for the short term, or maybe willing to get out. Deal? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Absolutely. Absolutely. Perfect. Let's go to football. Um, if you're a Giants or Jets fan, uh, you should be lucky you live in South Florida because you have no cable and you did not watch it. But overall, you made a good point off air that there weren't a whole lot of entertaining games this week, were there? No, I mean, if you looked around, I mean, I, I'm a Giants fan, as well documented on this show. Uh, that game was abysmal. It was also Sunday night, and I was really worried about the hurricane, and there were a lot of other more pressing concerns on, on me Sunday night. Um, but overall, I'm also a fantasy player, and when I looked through the highlights of the week, and there didn't seem anything even remotely like standout, I guess except for the Vikings last night on Monday night, um, they didn't seem to be like a, a standout performance, a, you know, a great new player, something captivating like the highlight of the week. There didn't seem to be any of that any electricity. The the Patriots and the Chiefs game was a total washout, I understand, in terms of ratings and the fact that Tom Brady proved fallible. Um, so it, it, it's it's going to be another tough season. You know, the, the NFL's problems aren't going away. Ezekiel Elliott is on the field. Colin, Colin Kaepernick isn't. Um, that's an interesting scenario for the NFL, and it's something that's not going to go away, and they're going to have it every week on every talk show. Um, so that's going to hang over the NFL a little bit. They won't have Trump to blame this year. I'm going to be interested to see how the ratings kind of smooth out or, or if they go back to where they traditionally had been. 
I found it interesting, ePoll, the research firm that does this kind of stuff for a living, says the NFL's brand has still a much higher awareness than any of the other sports. Probably so. The gap is closing. Well, it's looking up because they're getting a lot more exposure on the crime pages uh, and, and the, the court docket. So there's a, a whole new audience there for the NFL. Yeah, well, there's a whole new audience, and now that I guess inmates can watch TV on a regular basis, maybe we have some viewers that we didn't think of. Saints, Packers, Cardinals came out as the most appealing. Two of those three looked awful this week. Larry Fitzgerald, the most appealing player, he still looks pretty good. The two teams that have the most to go, Chargers and Rams, we'll cover them at length. But they're on an interim basis because both are playing in other stadiums before their new one gets done. And by the way, the Rams look pretty good. And the bottom line is the NFL will be the NFL, but there is a sidelight that seems to rise above all. It is incredible that Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Irma, J.J. Watt raising over $30 million attributed to him personally for Harvey Relief. And every athlete really can't win an MVP award or stand atop an Olympic podium, but these winners have hearts of gold, NHL as we speak, a $2 million relief package for Harvey and Irma. The leagues seem to hit it into overdrive when it comes to relief and crisis, don't they? Yeah, they do. I mean, it, 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 it's a testament, I guess, to the, the strength of the community feeling around sports teams um, and, and their ability to kind of really connect with people uh, in times of need and the, the kind of good feeling they espouse just, just by being around. And, uh, you know, uh, obviously there would, there's more money to give um, from professional sports franchises uh, into communities and into situations uh, uh, and to foundations. Uh, they haven't started to tap it. But uh, I guess the response to the disaster um, is always, you know, I- inspiring. Um, you know, it happened here, and this is the week of anniversary of 9-11. certainly happened here with the Mets and the Yankees. Um, after 9-11, uh, and uh, it was a, it's an important function, you know, if, if sports is going to have any redeeming quality uh, societally, this is where they have the ability to step in and, and kind of bypass all the, the noise the, or, or the real issue, the other issues on the other side of the ledger. Well, and, and, you know, golf has always led the uh, world as far as philanthropy. $4 billion is a total of PGA Tour talks about. There are two more events before the end of the FedEx Cup at the end of next week. And one of the interesting ones, we've been following this one, the Indie Women in Tech, uh, sponsored by Guggenheim, Robotics, STEM, Career Transitioning. Uh, Lexi Thompson won it with an incredible 19 under par, but the story is really the foundation. The Women in Tech Foundation gave a lot of money to training, and it's not just kind of a write a check and move forward. This was a week-long celebration of women in technology with the uh, Indianapolis Motor Speedway, And an interesting piece of it, I was interested in following it and got to hear her live. The keynote is a big sports fan, Bulls fan, by the way, Bears fan, God bless her. Her name is Mae Jemison. She gave a speech in front of LPGA golfers as well as the support group of this group. Why is she relevant? First, African-American woman in space. I know we normally have interviews that are focused entirely on athletes, but she's founder and president of the Jemison Group. She has some small, modest programs in place, like leading the 100-year Starship, a revolutionary initiative to assure the capability for human interstellar space travel by the end of the next decade. Who knows what that means? But she climbed aboard the space shuttle Endeavor, the leading 100-starship world, the conference that she's doing, Women's Hall of 
Fame and International Space Hall of Fame, but the bottom line is motivation, STEM, research, training, and she picked a golf tournament to give this speech to as well as talk about the similarities between, uh, I guess, stress as an athlete and stress in world entry, global reentry. A lot of interesting issues, Mae Jemison. So, Dr. Mae Jemison, you grew up on uh, in Chicago. Yes, I did. And you set your sights pretty significantly. But did you ever, when you're growing up, think that you would end up um, as the first African American astronaut in space. So, growing up as a little girl in Chicago, I always assumed I'd go into space. Interesting. I never thought that I would be the first African American woman to go into space. Definitely not the first woman of color in the world yeah. to go into space. Why? Because I thought that by the time I was old enough to become an astronaut, that we would have had all kinds of people in space, and in fact, we would have been at Mars yeah. or further. So for me, it was a little bit of a surprise, not that I was uh, going into space, but that there was this, this platform that developed to be able to, to use this platform of having been a first. So uh, where the wind goes is interesting because it is, uh, uh, the bio says geared to uh, teenagers, geared to people who will obviously follow your inspiration and try to be where you were and even farther. So significant pride uh, as you put that book together and reach out to everybody? When I wrote Find Where the Wind Goes, it was for teenagers because I wanted to do something biographical, not necessarily ready to do the, you know, the full mm. biography. Right. But the idea for teenagers was because it's a time period in which people are looking at different things and you're figuring out how far to push the envelope. And I noticed that people would come up and tell me, could you tell my son or daughter to do what I tell them to do and that they have to study hard and they have to follow this path? I'm thinking, hmm, this is not who I was. You know, I was one of those kids who, yes, I studied hard, and yes, I was very bright, and I was student council president, and all of those kind of things, but I pushed the envelope really hard. And I was fortunate enough to have teachers and parents who allowed me to use my skills and my talents for good, yeah. right? One of the issues that we have these days is that people do not, um, we want to just say something to teenagers. We just want to give an easy word to kids. But raising children is difficult. It's something that's not the same as their friend. And so we, I wanted to just try to provide some context uh, for kids. You know, and if, if teachers and other folks can find some context for it, that's fine. But I wanted to sort of answer this question about, you know, do, what kind of person could you be like? Because I was not that goody two-shoes who sat in the corner. And in fact, a number of my friends would read these articles about me. And they like, who in the blue blazes are they talking about here? Because that doesn't sound like you at all. And I think that that's really important. And in fact, it's influenced a lot of the work that I've done. Because um, one of the first things I did after I left NASA was to start something called the International Science Camp, The Earth We Share. And this was back in 1994, and it was about building science literacy. And we worked with teenagers, 12 to 16-year-olds. That's that age group that people don't right. like to play right. with, right? Because it's all about discovering and pushing and pulling. And what we wanted to do, again, was to have them use their powers for good, right? So we would give them difficult problems, and we would help to guide them, and we would train teachers to work on guiding them. So the problems were like predict the hot public stocks of the year 2030. This is in 1994. 
Were they right? Did they make a do they make well? A I think they 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 had different approaches to it doing global budgets. But the big thing was is to engage their interest. And so they learn all about stocks, they learn about science and different types of technology investment because you're asking them to solve a problem and then we're asking them to report it out to the public. And wow, there's nothing like peer pressure and motivation to help you move forward. And I think those are the pieces that we have to work on. High visibility, successful entrepreneur, a lot in common, I think, with many professional athletes the not that you hit a curveball, but tenacity. You never know. Well, uh, you, I'm not no, sure. Not a, <laughs> you may, you may. Michael Jordan couldn't, so I'm not sure if not, you can. Not a, not a Michael curve, Jordan couldn't go into space or hit a curveball. No, right? no, 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 no. So we're we're conflating. We're mixing things. Yeah, up, we are. Right? We're mixing things so, up deliberately. So so, so so different kinds of skill sets, but it doesn't mean it, it one thing or another. So my. Um, I liked lots of kind of sports. I liked basketball. Yeah. I liked um, to play, and I liked soccer and volleyball particularly. Um, but I danced, and people don't necessarily think of dancing as a sport, but it's incredibly athletic. Yeah. Of course and it is. And it's incredibly it. athletic. It and it teaches you the same kind of discipline. Yeah. Right? Well, that's the piece. And that, the that's, what I, that's what I'm getting at, the commonalities here, the, the, uh, the commitment to uh, a craft, the, the focus, the entrepreneurialism, the creativity, but the drive to be the best. And I'm trying to figure out what the similarities are between a world-class athlete and a world-class astronaut. Well, I, th I think all of these things, it's about discipline, right? Sometimes people have a, a, an incredible amount of innate talent, but you can't get that talent out. You can't make right. it happen without the discipline to, to practice, to think through things, to be willing to to put something off, else off, to be able to do this practice. One of the best questions I was ever asked was by um, a 12-year-old girl, and she asked me, how did dance, being a dancer, help me in the astronaut program? Yeah. And a lot of people laughed at her, classmates yeah. laughed at her. And I said it was just the sheer discipline of the ability to take criticism, the ability to know you have to do your job. Right. Even if you're a backup performer, you do your job really well. And so that makes a difference, the ability to rehearse and to study and to memorize things. I think that that's part of it. And, and you can even go further. So, for example, in, um, in, in medical school, it's an incredible amount of discipline that you have to have yeah. and to be, you know, to, to, to be able to get through things and be willing to put things aside in order to uh, work for the good of your, your patient. And you're thinking, all right, this guy's not making free throws with two minutes left. Huh. Imagine what this person thinks in reentry. I mean, it's the, there's a different stress level when you deal with it. You've been through everything, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And regardless of whether or not you can focus on the task at hand, you, you're able to deal with a whole lot of things that are well beyond most people's experience level. Well, I, I think that we, we all have the ability to look at things. When I see sometimes, I remember sort of tour de, de force yeah. performances, you mentioned yeah. Michael Jordan, but I can't remember, I think it was with Utah, there was a game against with Utah where he had the flu yeah. and his ability to get right. into a zone even with the flu and yeah. deliver is something that you know you, sometimes you have to do. And you can see different parallels all the way through from, from docs who work in different places to fighter pilots to people working in nuclear power plants to someone dealing with the medical emer the emergencies like 
um, that just happened in Houston where I live yeah. with Hurricane Harvey. It is ability to understand that you focus and you bring discipline to the table and you do the right thing and you you have the ability to set aside certain things from time to time. Finally, sports as um, and its ability to empower. So we're here with Women in Tech, keynote, and we have a lot of girls, young girls, who are looking up to you, uh, not only the professional golfers, but the STEM, the robotics, the high school, the kids. There's a commonality here between the Indy uh, Motor Speedway, the, the Women in Tech tournament, and the ability to succeed, and the ability to be empowered. So give me an idea of the synergies between all of that. So here's what I think. I think that a lot of what we see, whether we talk about technology and um, you know, ath women in ath um, athletics, to you know, the motor speedway has to do with perspective. And the difficulty, I'm gonna tell you, is not with the athletes or the students or the, the women, it's with society and its perspectives. So a lot of the challenges are that you have to overcome society's expectations and very frequently less accommodation and help. So what's really exciting about this is to bring these together and have people think through these things. My message to folks is not just to the girls, but it's to the older males who may be making the decisions about whether or not those girls are gonna be their colleagues in, in uh, academia later on, are to be their colleagues when uh, changing the motor in a car. Mm -hmm. That's the difference. To the girls, I'll say, don't doubt, dare. The daring makes a difference. That's what we have to do is understand you have a right to be there. And finally, you talk about perspective, and it is interesting that we talk about overcoming barriers in life, but you're leading a program that's going to get us to a new star in 100 years. Tell us about that. 100 Year Starship <laughs> is about making sure we have the capabilities for human travel beyond our solar system to another star in 100 years. It's there because it's really difficult to do. We don't know how to do it. Yet it's in trying to achieve the extraordinary tomorrow that we build a better world today. If we just do those things we know how to do, we'll never reach the heights of things that we could do. We would not have any of the capabilities we have now in uh, many of the STEM fields if we had not tried to do things like understand how DNA is replicated or structured, understand and figure out and actually go to the moon. We wouldn't have had any of those things. And so it's really about trying for the extraordinary. Why interstellar? Why go beyond our solar system? Because the challenges to getting beyond our solar system with humans is very similar to the challenges that we face on this starship, planet Earth, today. Dr. Jemison, it's incredible. It's an honor. She talks about Michael Jordan with the flu against Utah, but she's going to take us to another star in 100 years. How about that? Thank you very much. You're very welcome. <laughs> really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. The producer, Alex Cohn. Associate producers, Freddie Joyner and Ryan Warner. Assistance provided by Carlos Swadek, Tanner Simpkins, and Ronnie Sokatch, and the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Calaruso. I'm Rick Haro. Thanks again for listening. See you next time on Keeping Score.